Today on The Black Goat, friendships are an important part of life, and today we talk about maintaining friendships outside of academia, plus a letter from someone who p-hacked their way to tenure and now wonders what to do about it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. Uh, with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Alexa Tullett. Hi, Alexa. Hi, Sanjay. And Samin Vizier. Hi, Sanjay. You know, it's a little weird. So uh, to, to slightly break the curtain, we're, we're recording ahead a little bit because of upcoming travel. And so, so we actually record, we're recording the day after we recorded the episode, uh, but they'll come out two weeks apart. Um, and so it's weird. I, I just got to say, it's weird reading that introduction and being like, I just said this yesterday. <laughs> yeah, right. I feel so contrived. I, I, I know, don't really I mean hi, Alexa. Yeah, yeah, we're getting like, kind we, of sick of each other at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've been we've been talking for so long. So uh, another another breaking the curtain thing. I hope it's OK if I, I disclose this. Uh, um uh, some some members of our group do occasionally drink a little bit of whiskey before we uh, start recording to loosen up. What what's it's no everyone's... Real. People are only going to guess me, and no one is. Gonna guess me. <laughs> That's not true. I think I without without saying it. who does and who doesn't, uh, um, what are your favorite kinds of whiskey? I don't think I can tell the difference, but actually, so yesterday I was, there were like three different bottles where I'm staying and I was like smelling the different ones to see which one. And I don't think I like, um, it, there was one that was like Irish. I actually think it's a bottle that Eric Knopfel left behind at a party once that I still have, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't like the smell of that. So I, I took Basil Hayden, I think was the, the one okay. that I drank. It was pretty good. Okay. I've done a uh, blind whiskey taste test before. Um, and I'm really bad at discerning um, the difference between them, especially along like uh, monetary lines or like objective yeah. quality lines. Like I just don't know. So I, I think I can sort of tell like really, really low, like the cheapest, cheapest whiskey. Like I'd like it a little bit less, but beyond that, I just have no idea. Yeah, me neither. I do like the smoky kind. So like scotches or is that? Yeah, I don't know. So there's one called like I always say it wrong. Lafroy, Lafroy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, like yeah, that yeah. that's a scotch. That's a that's a very smoky peaty scotch. Yeah, yeah, I like that one. Yeah, I've kind of just recently started sort of exploring scotches. Um, so I was a, a bourbon and rye drinker for a long time, and I, I've started sort of. Uh, uh, a friend of mine bought me a bottle uh, on a bet. Uh, bought me a bottle of Oban, which is like this really delicious scotch. And I'm now like, Oh shit. I like expensive <laughs> scotch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's like life was so much I never, easier when I, when I, had I didn't the same have problem. any. <laughs> I never drank wine. And then I started drinking wine when I was dating this guy who was really, really into wine. So like he only mm-hmm. drank like $150 bottles of wine. Holy and shit. so that's like the only kind of wine I drank for a long time. And then I would like go to a hotel bar and like have their house Merlot and be like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> So the only thing I think I know about wine is, like, I don't like wines that start with M. That's, like, my, what I've tried to discern about my preferences, which I'm sure is not the right heuristic, but that's the only one I can figure out. Interesting. But scotches that start with M, you're cool with? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I haven't figured out differences among whiskeys other than that, that one Irish one that smells funny. I think yeah, yeah. I think once you get start getting into scotch, I think they do taste quite different. But yeah. I don't know anything about scotch other than like sometimes I'll drink scotch and be like, "Whoa, this doesn't taste like uh, what's that? What's a cheap one?" Um, anyways, one time yeah, the first one. time I ever had scotch, I was in Edinburgh for on, like visiting by myself, and I walked through a mall because it was raining, so I was trying to take a shortcut, and it was like in the like I don't know women's dresses section they were handing out free scotch samples and it's like 10 a.m but i was like okay sure and i'd never had scotch before and i had like a tiny little sip and then i was drunk like for the next hour and then you were like these dresses look amazing (laughs) (laughs) i love dresses uh yeah i'm i'm just starting so i don't i don't really have a palette for different scotches but i i am very particular about uh in my manhattans and old fashions i like a uh a rye rather than a bourbon because um, they're they're a little less sweet and, and I like the sort of the flavor better and in particular <laughs> this is I've, I, I, I've figured out that I've like gotten too accustomed to drinking like 
Manhattans and old fashions because I can tell the difference between like a regular 80 proof and like a cask strength and the 80 proof tastes too watery if it's like in a mixed drink and I'm like <laughs> that's like me with two percent milk I'm like this isn't milk not real milk wait I think two yeah. percent milk is too watery yes what kind of milk do you drink? Whole milk. <laughs> oh my proof god. Milk. <laughs> also, I'm pretty That's sure disgusting. that I could tell you. I could do a blind taste test of like the main brands of Earl Grey, and I could tell you which one it is. That's that is like my only drinking skill, I think. We sound like <laughs> such a bunch of fucking snobs, don't we? <laughs> no, but yeah, I am about Earl Grey tea, but yeah. not not whiskey. I don't know anything about whiskey. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, so uh, um, speaking of uh, trying on dresses and whatnot, yeah. Samin, uh, you had you had an interesting experience recently. Yeah. So people have recently found out that I've never had a pedicure and they've been like threatening to take me to pedicure. I don't know if they're <laughs> serious, but um, so then the other day I had some time to kill and I was at a mall and there was a, I don't even know what you call the place where you get a pedicure, but there was one of those places. And I I was going to go out somewhere where I had to kind of dress up. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll get a pedicure. Like, everyone says it's so relaxing. And it was so painful. It was terrible. So there were, like, the person giving me the pedicure, she was awesome. She was really, like, really good at what she does and took it really seriously. And so she was, like, not going to let me get out of there without fixing my toenails. And apparently I cut my toenails wrong. Like, I cut them too much on the sides, which you're apparently not supposed to. It's, like, the worst thing in the world. Anyway, so she spent probably an hour like trying to fix and it was super painful so then they started giving me champagne because <laughs> they didn't want to like <laughs> they didn't want to not finish the job because they're like really proud of what they do and then so I heard them speaking to each other in a foreign language and it, I thought I heard some words that sounded like Farsi so I asked if they were speaking Farsi and they said no but their other co-workers spoke Farsi so they made her come over and talk to me in Farsi to try to distract <laughs> me from all the pain but I don't really speak Farsi so I could understand like the verb in the sentence that she was asking me <laughs> anyway I felt bad for her so but they were like they were really great but also it was not at all relaxing and so I've long had the suspicion that like all these things that people like, I don't do a lot of girly things, and I don't feel like I'm missing out, but everyone's like, how can you not do this, or whatever? Like, my worst nightmare is, like, going to a bachelorette party. Like, I hope I never, ever have to go to a bachelorette party. <laughs> I feel so um, much more motivated to get married now, to make yeah. you go to a bachelorette party. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I now I think I'm right. Like, I think all these things that people say women should enjoy, I don't enjoy, I don't, yeah, I mean... This pedicure in particular was probably an outlier. Like most pedicures are probably more fun. But, <laughs> it would take an yeah, hour like, to distract you. Yeah. I had to. So then I still like I dressed up and went out for this thing. And I just I don't know. I hate doing feminine. Thing. I just don't feel I feel like I feel like I'm in drag. I just can't get used to it. And I don't know if it's like a matter of if I did it more, I would get used to it. Or I don't know. I feel like I'm afraid that I'm going to get caught. That, like, everybody knows I'm not supposed to be, like, in this dress and strappy sandals and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's such a weird feeling. Do you, is it, like, I mean, it, there's this interesting, I mean, it's actually kind of funny we were talking, you know, just talking about whiskey, right? Like, there there are a lot of things that, like, are unpleasant the first time. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but then you kind of, like, get into them later. Yeah. And there's this weird, like, that first time, like, the first time you try whiskey, for example, or, right. or black coffee or, you know, whatever, you know, like, it, the psychology of that is kind of interesting and and since we only go through those things pretty rarely because it's by definition the first time you know it's hard to sort of tap into but it's like sometimes first time things like that feel like oh i can even though this is unpleasant there's a part of my actual experience that i can tell that i would i might enjoy this if i continue and then sometimes i think it's just like i'm just going to keep doing it because i supposed to and i'm supposed to and eventually catches up like do you Mm -hmm. do you feel like the the like you know getting a pedicure and wearing a dress is like a thing that you want to be okay with or is it like you're just like no fuck this shit like I'm, I, I don't want to do this I feel like my like life so like when I until I was probably like I don't know 15 or something I oh, I was a huge tomboy I had short hair most of my childhood I absolutely refused to wear dresses and stuff like that most people thought I was a boy in like elementary school and then I think I just like sucked it up and was like fine I guess like if I want to go to prom and, do, and I didn't really care I was happy to wear a dress I didn't like the dress part but whatever 
Um, and then so I went like most of my adult life up until now being like, well, when I have to dress up, I'll dress up. But like, I'm starting to be like, no, that seven year old self was my true self. And like, I'm regressing. I'm like more and more like, I just want to wear my hoodie every day. And it just feels, I feel like a fraud or an imposter. Like it's interesting that you describe that as regressing. I mean, in, in some ways you're like, it sounds more like you're becoming more, independent you know yeah, I guess that, I that feels like the opposite now, of regressing not, yeah like yeah. maybe now I don't have to do the things that and also yeah I don't know I I'm don't curious know. whether it's like the the like most common instantiation of these activities that you don't like like you don't identify with them but like the core feeling that people are looking for you would like or if it's like actually like that's not like a valuable feeling to you so like I think people like dressing up because they like to like feel like they look good you know and they like the like confidence that goes with that it's hard for me to imagine somebody like not liking that but it's easy for me to imagine somebody like getting that from like wearing something different like Mm -hmm. i have my feelings about dresses have changed a little bit recently like i wear dresses way more often than i used to because alabama is so hot um but like uh yeah it's hard to imagine like somebody wouldn't want to like feel like they look good this is going to sound completely falsely modest and i don't really mean it but like i think i don't like direct attention on me like i don't like someone commented on my pedicure my toes like Mm -hmm. at the thing i dressed up and i was like oh that makes me feel so uncomfortable but i think part of the reason i like podcasts and blogs stuff it's like deflected attention right i i won't deny that i like attention like everybody else for some things right but i think i like it when i when i'm a step removed from it so like so what if somebody was like told me like Simeon looked really good in that dress and then I told you <laughs> I, I don't know yeah well, I think there, I also something... I think I really like I don't know I don't like the idea of conforming to like stereotypes and norms yeah. and stuff like that so I think that's part of it too it's like I don't want to get draw attention for things that are like stereotypically female I don't know maybe that's yeah. part of it I'm not sure I, yeah I was gonna say there there's something there's like a these aren't these can overlap a lot, but they're, they're, they can also be quite different, like the difference between like wanting attention for attention's sake versus self-expression, you know, mm-hmm. like there's something like, you know, about dressing, if it's maybe it's a sort of showy way, but that feels sort of like an expression of yourself, that that kind of, like you said, indirect attention can kind of feel like you know, it's like I'm being validated for expressing something that's part of me. That feels very different than just like, hey, look at me, everybody, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in some ways, and, and not everyone wants that, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I feel like in, in Eugene, uh, it's so aggressively casual that, like, putting on a sport coat and slacks <laughs> is an act of rebellion here. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of, I, I kind of enjoy that. Like, I was never a sport coat and slacks guy until fairly fairly recently when my wife and I go out to dinner. Sometimes I'll, like, throw, not slacks, actually. I still don't like slacks. But, you know, like a, a sport coat. And it just sort of feels like, oh, this. but it's also, like, it, it, it's, like, it's fun for us. And I don't, mm-hmm. nobody's making me do it. And nobody's yeah. expecting me to do it. And so yeah. it's, like brings a sense of occasion and that kind of thing. And I certainly don't expect other people are supposed to do that. Um, mm-hmm. It's just kind of fun for me, but it also is kind of fun to see people's reactions where it's like, yeah. what, you know, what are you dressed like that for? I feel like there's like, so I do identify with you, Samin, and like the, like, like compliments about things where you feel like a little bit uncomfortable doing them already can be very mm-hmm. like disconcerting. So yeah, sometimes, um, in my department, I'll be like wearing a dress and somebody will be, will be like, Oh, you look really nice today. Yeah. And it just, it feels like they're saying like, Oh, you're not wearing shorts with like a hole in them today. Like, <laughs> yeah. I really don't like the reaction from people who know me when I dress up. That's like the worst thing ever. It's like the way mm-hmm. to guarantee that I'll never dress up again. Mm-hmm. Is, is there like a, a different, so, so, I mean, you mentioned it's like the sort of, like it's a gender expression that doesn't feel like you. So is there a different way of dressing up that you would feel that way with? Yeah, I thought about that. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I'm jealous of men who get to wear ties and I know they must be super uncomfortable, but I feel like a tie is exactly the right amount of like flair or something. Like I don't <laughs> like the whole dress and sandals and blah, blah, blah. And then you have to have a purse that matches, but like a guy can just like put on a button down shirt and then like pick out a tie and then he's dressed up. And like, I'm kind of jealous of that. Um, but, like, now when I give talks, if I have to quote-unquote dress up, which I never really do, but if I can't give a talk in, like, jeans and a T-shirt, I'll put a blazer on. And I like that a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. 
that I actually feel like maybe I should try that out more often than when I absolutely have to because I do kind of like it um yeah so I think it's not the dressing up part so much as the femininity part that and I think there's a lot of different reasons why I don't like that yeah Mm -hmm. yeah that is interesting like I think the you know the 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 concept of sort of like dressing for an occasion um is so tied in with you know gender expectations social class expectations other kinds Mm -hmm. of things that i think a lot of people experience it as really aversive because Mm -hmm. they're they're being sort of forced to like conform to a gender expression or or you know look like a social class that doesn't feel like them or whatever and it, it would be interesting to like you know i think contemporary society there are starting to be ways that people can kind of like have ways of occasion dressing that feel like self-expression and but even then you you have to worry about what signal you're sending with your choices and i'm totally oblivious so then it makes me nervous that i might accidentally be like claiming to be trying to do to look like something i'm not or whatever i remember one time i had to give a talk at spsp and i forgot to bring nice shoes so i only had like bright orange sneakers and someone was like oh like you're so bold you like think that you can get away with that and i was like no i just forgot other shoes and now i'm like worried that when i don't dress up as much as i'm supposed to like people think i'm like trying to prove something i just really really hate dressing up but i mean that the thing yeah the thing about clothing is like you're never not sending a signal right like yeah. you can't you can't abstain from it it's it's like you know not talking in a room full of people isn't like abstaining neutral, from yeah. it's mm-hmm. right it, yeah. you know there there is no neutral there's you know that i think that's what makes it really hard especially for people that there's some part of their identity that that kind of mismatches with the the expectations that people are putting on them yeah yeah, and I mean, I was on the job market, it's already been, you know, whatever, 12 years, but even that recently, I was told that I should wear, like, a skirt suit and not a pantsuit, and I was like, mm-hmm. fuck that, there's no yeah, way I'm so doing that. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. Like, I think by now, yeah. maybe that advice would be, would not be given anymore, but I hope so anyway. Yeah, but. I also yeah. ignored that advice. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it, that intersects with, like, race and class in some interesting ways, right? Like mm-hmm. people, it takes a certain amount of privilege to be able to not dress up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, yeah, uh, we, you know, and so I, it's funny, I have, I have kind of like, I think almost the reverse, you know, with, with like job speakers, like, you know, I don't particularly care what somebody wears, like, and, and, you know, I've heard not, not really here at my current institution, but like at other places, you know, people are like, oh, so-and-so, I can't believe she wore those pantyhose or whatever. And it's like, oh, fuck that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I, I have had the instance of like white dudes wearing really sloppy clothing and just I can't stop thinking like, oh, yeah, you think yeah. you're sending the signal that you're just like a regular guy. But to me, what you're saying is like, I can afford can to afford, do this. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and and you know I yeah, try I to think sort of separate from that, but it's like it's if anything, it's show. like the reverse. Yeah, it's hard because it's good to show that you care about like the local norms and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, with the skirt suit thing, also like I would have felt so uncomfortable in that outfit mm-hmm. that it would have ruined my job interview in other ways. Yeah. Like wearing uncomfortable <laughs> yeah. shoes was bad enough, but yeah. Well, that yeah, like that's not about like dressing up versus down. That's like right, right. gender conformity. Yeah, yeah, it's you know, and that that stuff to me is is nuts. And women have to deal with that obviously a zillion times more than men do. Um, you know, the 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 rules for women are so specific and weird, and they change every season. And you yeah. know, yeah, yeah, cool. Well, uh, should we should we talk about our letter of the week. I think this is a really interesting one. Um, yeah, Alexa, you want to read is, us the letter? This letter gets 10 out of 10. This is a great letter. Um, okay. Dear the Black Goat, I'm a faculty member at a formerly teaching only, i.e. not particularly prestigious university. I've never been a prolific researcher, and in truth, I only just scraped over the already low tenure bar that was set for me, publishing on average just a single paper per year pre-tenure. Simmons et al.'s 2011 false positive psychology paper coincided with my achieving tenure and was a revelation to me. Post-tenure, I've increased the sample size of my studies, conducted replications, made my data open, begun to pre-register my hypotheses, and taught my students to do the same. Of course, this means I was doing none of these things pre-tenure. What's worse is that some of my pre-tenure publications were also p-hacked. 
The sins I can clearly recall include omitting DVs and or conditions and optional stopping to achieve P less than 0.05. I'd like to come clean about these P-hacked papers and express my reduced confidence in their results. I can think of various forums in which to do so, including blog posts, comments on PubPeer, perhaps even writing to the journals in which the papers were published. I'm not entirely sure what's stopping me, other than A, a lack of examples of how to do this sort of thing, and B, perhaps some fear that doing so would undermine the basis on which I was granted tenure. So here, I guess, is my question. Given that we uh, believe significant numbers of papers pre-2011 were p-hacked, and that it would be beneficial to know which, is there a way to encourage people like me to come clean a to come clean about the past. Yours with a guilty conscience, Anonymous. That's so interesting after our last episode. We were kind of talking about our personal journeys with replication and and how it kind of, I think for for Samin and I, that sort of... uh, coincided pretty closely with us getting tenure um, and and Alexa with kind of like beginning your career. And so, you know, this person sounds like in a, in a similar range and, and kind of had a similar journey. Yeah. Um, They're yeah. so much more honest with themselves about it. Like I, it never occurred to me to like come clean about which of my papers were p-hacked because like probably all of them, right? Like, I don't know. I just thought everyone assumed that everything pre-2011 was p-hacked and like you would need evidence to the contrary rather than we need to like come out and say that we weren't completely transparent and yeah yeah although i mean i think there there have been a couple instances right but not a lot but you know i think of like mickey inslicht uh uh, alexa your former advisor writing Mm -hmm. he wrote a blog post about sort of coming to grips with his past and actually like I don't think he was calling out specific papers exactly, but he was kind of like, you know, running P-curve and other things on papers before versus after he changed his practices. Um, And he got a lot of, I think, uh, it would be interesting to actually ask him if he got any negative feedback. I I feel like what I saw was almost universally positive feedback about that. Yeah, and I mean, I think another good example is Dana Carney. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, she was talking about a specific paper and... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Again, like, I don't know what her experience was like overall, but I know that the people that I know who talked about her post um, really admired her, and I really yeah. admire her for her post. And for, think... for people listening, that Dana, just in case you're not up on the conversation, yeah, yeah, Dana yeah. Carney was the first author of the original power posing paper in psychological science. Yeah, and she posted think... something on her website or something like detailing, you know, what she felt that she did in the paper that could have led to potentially a false positive result and the things that she sort of um, regretted doing. Um, So it was a very honest and, um, yeah, I I don't know. Like, she uh, accepted a lot of, like, blame, I think. Um, But, yeah, in a way that I I really admired. Yeah, I mean, the blowback I've heard about people doing stuff like that is not so much like, oh, then you're a bad scientist. I haven't heard anything like that, that like, oh, well, the things you admitted are bad and you shouldn't have done them. The blowback I've heard, and not necessarily in these specific instances, is like, we shouldn't be airing our dirty laundry in public, like you're making our field look bad or you're throwing your co-authors under the bus or things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not so much what this writer seems more like, would would people think I shouldn't have gotten tenure if I admit these things? And I really hope nobody would think that, like... All of us who got tenure up until, I wouldn't say 2011, I would say like 2017, um, got tenure on the basis of at least some P-hacked papers if we're, you know, mainstream social personality psychologists. Um, So I don't think there would be that reaction of like, oh, what you did is so bad and you should be, your tenure should be revoked or anything like that. But there might be other sources of bad reactions. I guess well, there I think are... the, there's the, the sort of the general like social media, whatever kind of reaction. I feel like people have, in public are pretty supportive. But, I, you know, I do think that like it's, it's a ve- that's a very local and specific question about this person's institution. Right. I think that there are still people out there who think there is no replication crisis. We've been doing it fine. And, and if somebody came forward and said, look, I, I was breaking the rules, they'd be like, oh, you're one of those or whatever. Um, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to presume that this person would definitely not face any blowback for it but i think it would be more blowback for like their position on the replicability crisis than blowback for their practices i think that people who don't think there's a uh, replicability crisis are probably like gonna hear somebody say oh my gosh like papers that i published before tenure had multiple dvs and i didn't report them all and think like yeah big deal 
No. Like, I don't think they're yeah. going to think, oh, my God, you did that? Mm-hmm. I didn't know. Like, yeah. Um, I, I think mean, there so are a couple of reasons that you could sort of imagine that it would be nice to come clean about these things. So I think the letter writer kind of alludes to these, but it's not totally clear to me which one they think is more important. So in part, you could be um, wanting to alert people to findings that you think are um, mm-hmm. are not going to be are not going to replicate to sort of like, I guess, save other people from wasting their time working on those findings or building, you know, um, theories based on them. Um, and another, I think another reason could be that just like, sort of like wanting to, you know, confess and also like sort of be one example of somebody who is, um, admitting to doing these practices as sort of like to set an example for others. Um, so I think, how to handle it depends a little bit on which of those things are more important to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, maybe this is something I'll regret saying, like kind of like we were talking about last episode about how, like we said naive things early on, <laughs> you know, whatever. And, but, but like, I, I don't feel like it's obligatory across the board for everyone who like sort of realizes, Oh, I need to change my practices to like, sort of go through, you know, like what, what Mickey did, for example, or, or that kind of thing. I don't think this is like everyone needs to do it. So it's, I, it is kind of interesting. Like, I, I, I guess I would tell this person who's writing that if they just feel like they're doing this out of some sense of guilt or whatever, or, you know, I mean, guilt can be a, a beneficial thing, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say as an outsider that like there's generically, there's a need to do it. But I, I do think like, there can be good reasons to do it. And I think you hit on two really good ones. Like there might be specific papers that are either people are trying to replicate them or they're being used in policy or Mm -hmm. whatever. I mean, that's, that's tough too, because you don't, I mean, you can certainly write in a nuanced way, but you don't necessarily know that the conclusions are wrong. You just know that the way you got to them was not ideal. Yeah. And maybe this is also really naive. I think it is, but I guess I think that, for me, like now I know what signs to look for. So I don't know for sure if something was p-hacked or not, but I know for sure if it was pre-registered or not, or if it had a large sample or not, or things like that. So when I read papers, not just pre-2011 papers, but even now, like if I don't see positive signs of like newer, better practices, then I'm going to assume there's like a decent chance, not at all for sure, but like a decent chance that some flexibility in data analysis was in there and stuff like that. So I guess like I don't think this person needs to feel too guilty unless there are like misleading signs in there. Like if you say you pre-registered something you didn't or you say, I don't know, if there are like things that are beyond what was the norm back then. And I, I guess this is why it's naive is that I don't think we all agree on a, what was the norm back then, or B, how to tell if people were doing that or not, or what the default base rate assumption should be about whether people were doing that or not. But, like, I don't know, one thing that struck me in this letter was, like, they're saying, well, there's various forums in which I could come clean, like blog posts, comments on PubPeer, or even writing to the journals in which the papers are published. It would be really fascinating. Like, I don't think it would be a bad thing, but it would be a, a huge... I don't know, like problem in our field. It would be something we'd have to deal with. If everybody started writing to journals in which their papers were published saying, I harked or I omitted DVs or I like included mm-hmm. a covariate post hoc. Um, if people started writing to the journals saying like my 2010 paper did this and I want to publish an ad, like what would journals do if, if everybody who did that wrote to journals? Like, I mean, I think that's why there's things like pub peer and blog posts and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I guess that would be really fascinating if an editor said, no, you can't do that. Like if some if they're like, look, you know, this this is I mean, it would be interesting to see, like, I, I could easily imagine some editors trying to, like, well, figure out ways to not do that. And I don't necessarily blame them. Right. Like if if an author wrote in and said we had other measures that we didn't report. I'm like, okay, but you didn't say that you didn't, and also that was, like, the norm. Like, I don't know if a reader would assume for sure that you didn't, especially post-replicability crisis. If they're reading your 2009 paper, you know, like, it would be kind of naive at this point to assume that authors were reporting everything completely transparently. So, I don't know, like, errata take up journal space. What should be the bar for saying, yes, we'll publish a correction to your paper because you want to be more transparent now? Even an editor who supports transparency, I'm not sure, would say, yes, you should publish an erratum in the journal. But I don't know. Yeah. 
But I mean, so I think for, you know, this person seems, you know, they're wondering, like, how to do it, you know, and they mentioned blog posts and pub peer and, and writing to the journals. And, you know, they're, they're all so seem to have some sort of apprehension about, like, what might happen as a consequence. I mean, I, I guess I would say that any of those things kind of come, comes back to, like, what's the you know, what, what's the goal? So I, I think, for example, like, let's say you have some finding that, you know, you know, people are citing and relying on to either build on or to, to, you know, do policy or whatever. And you have serious questions about whether that finding actually would hold up. I, I think in that case, you you probably want to do something fairly specific, right? And you want to, you yeah, know, right. if you're if you're concerned enough to do something, it might be. I mean, maybe it rises to the level of an erratum, or maybe but a, a pub peer comment or position? something. I mean, don't we all have papers if we've been doing research for more than a few years that we have serious concerns about whether that finding would hold up or not? Like even yeah. even when you're doing the best practices, you should have concerns about whether right. or not the finding will hold yeah. up. So that seems like too low of a bar to me to say. Well, I think we have... I, I think if you I think it would also be coupled with like having a pretty specific reason yeah, to yeah. be concerned about it. Like, look, I you know we ran this on our primary outcome and yeah. it didn't work, and then right. I dug around. 50 so, like, if the readers knew this, they might think of it differently. Yeah, yeah. like the Carney one, the right, example right, right, where yeah. it was like very specific information yeah. about like what was you done. know how yeah um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that 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 is one form, but I think also just like. Uh, you know, something, I mean, what Mickey did had a quantitative component, and I, I don't think you necessarily need to do that, but to say, like, you know, if you want, if someone wanted to write a coming clean post and just say, hey, look, you know, I've been reforming my practices, but, you know, up to a certain point, here are some of the things that, um, you know, that I was, I was yeah. typically doing, and, and you should kind of, if you're following up on my work, you should be aware, and I, I don't know if this means the conclusions are wrong. I don't know how badly this would have distorted, but I just want the world to know. Yeah. And again, I don't think that's obligatory for mm-hmm. everyone to do, because then there would be as many blog posts as there are people in Right. So on the whole, jobs, I think it would be but... great. It would be a great problem to have if everyone started flooding pub peer or journals or blogs with these, like, corrections and 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 more like confessions about we did these other analyses things like that Mm -hmm. just to play devil's advocate though let's say it doesn't take off and everyone doesn't start doing it isn't there a danger if this let's say this letter writer does it writes a blog post saying here are three papers that i you know engage in flexibility and data analysis i didn't disclose and i think if you knew this you would have less confidence in the finding and let's say it's simple things like I, i had a couple other dbs or i didn't plan to include this covariate or that kind of thing isn't there a danger in if the, if those things are the exception of that letting everyone else off the hook of that making observers on the outside or people who don't believe that there's a big problem or journalists think oh well then any paper that doesn't have this kind of confession is fine right like if if this is really like something that almost everybody was doing some version of then by singling out specific papers and saying you should have less confidence in these three papers because I did these things. Isn't that giving the false impression that the rest of the literature might be okay? I mean, do you, do you think when, when Mickey Inslick did his post that it had that effect? No, but a part of Mickey Inslick's message was you all should be doing this too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that you're, I think, I think that you, I'm not sure that people would interpret like, you know, some confessions coming out as a sign that like now, papers that don't have these confessions associated with them are fine. Like, um, that just doesn't seem that likely to me. Um, but I do think that the, so when I was considering the, the different motivations that somebody could have, um, in making a confession like this, I do think that the motivation to more like set an example and, um, uh, sort of like make other people, more feel more comfortable in admitting these practices yeah, themselves yeah. um is i think that motivation maybe is more productive than than yeah. the motivation because i agree with you samin that like basically we should just be really skeptical of everything that was published yeah um, i guess it depends on the tone so like my concern is if someone comes out and makes these confessions with the tone of like you guys i'm a really bad person i did this stuff i feel like that could undermine progress by giving the sense that only really bad people did these things whereas if they say you guys let's just all be honest i'll go first i did this i think that would be a very different tone yeah and actually i think that you know one way to do that is to write 
a letter to us and then we can read it (laughs) (laughs) without revealing her identity. Uh, Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I think, right. Like how, how you write it is obviously going to have an effect, but I do think there's a way of saying there's been a lot of conversation about people doing it. And I want to be someone to say, yes, I was part of the trend and and I want to sort of talk about what it was like to be someone doing that or whatever. I think that can be a really constructive thing. I think, and and the examples we're talking about have been very much in that spirit. They haven't been like, I'm the exception or, or whatever, you know, yeah. yeah, so I guess I don't want people to feel like they're the exception for the, their own sake. Like, I don't want this yeah, letter writer right. to think they're alone. And I also don't want that letter writer to tell other people that they're the exception, that they're a bad apple, because that's not accurate. So they shouldn't feel that way for their own well-being. And yeah. they shouldn't tell other people that they're an outlier because they're not. And I think it's important for us to accept yeah. that. But, mm-hmm. yeah, yep. that's a minor yeah. kind of angle on this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool. Well, I, I hope we've helped this person out. Um, it'll be uh, um, this was, if I remember right, this this person actually like had a real anonymous email. So I don't think we even usually when people email us, like we know who they are, but we always don't say they're because they're just emailing us from their account, and we always don't say the identity. But I seem to remember this was an actual like throwaway email account. But uh, yeah, they did. If you created. if you are this person and you do this uh, and you were inclined. Uh, I would be super curious to see your blog post or pub beer comments or whatever you do. And if you're not inclined, I think kind of our consensus is like, dude, dude or dude at, or I don't know, whatever uh, person you don't, you don't have to do this. Um, I don't think you're a bad person for, you know, if, well, if we you haven't feel like done you have it, to. so we, 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 <laughs> well, we kind of did it on the podcast, but you but know, not yeah, naming it also sounds right. like this right. person has changed their research practices. Yeah. Quite that's a bit. really impressive. I know that like, that's, yeah, the description is really awesome, and and I think that's something to feel proud of yeah. because that's that's definitely like, above average. That's hard. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to do these new things the first time, and it's in some ways even harder to change because you you have to confront how you've been doing, and you have to yeah, turn right. Around. Especially when you have been sort of validated for doing those things that way for mm-hmm. a long time. Yeah, cool. Cool. Well, so if you're listening and you have uh, a letter or a confession, um, uh, you can email us letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. And uh, yeah, we, we love getting these kind of letters, especially when it's like specific and, and you know, someone asking for advice and we can give you our uh, possibly misguided <laughs> opinions about what you should do mm-hmm. uh so someone needs to send us whiskey a letter fueled about like opinions whiskey fueled opinions someone someone should write us a letter about like should i be giving advice and then we'll all say no <laughs> right. and it'll be like meta and ironic and everything cool well so our our main topic for today that we wanted to talk about uh um is friendships outside of psychology and outside of academia more generally um, and, uh, yeah, it's kind of an interesting topic. I, I, uh, you know, as we were getting ready, uh, we didn't necessarily have like, sometimes we have like a topic and, and like, I feel like I've got like an hour long rant in my head that I, I'm going to have to like trim down to talk about. Um, this is something I think we all agreed is like really important. Um, uh, it's, I don't know that I have like a rant teed up to, to go off on, but it is like I, I feel like friendships are when we talk about like work life balance when we talk about relationships, you know, we're often talking about like romantic relationships or we're talking about, you know, family and things like that. I feel like friendships kind of get less attention, but they're they're a pretty important part of being like a healthy person with healthy relationships. I don't think they get, uh, you know, as much credit for how important they are in people's lives at least in terms of like academics studying things and talking about things right but like friendships are key but our friendships outside of academia you know they i guess there are there's specific challenges and i don't know do we even need them (laughs) (laughs) i think that my feelings about um friendships outside of academia have changed quite a bit over time um so i think when i was in grad school I basically only had friends who were psychologists, almost literally, um, and and definitely didn't have friends outside of academia. So I did have some friends who were not psychologists, but they were also in academia. Um, and I was quite happy with that, like with that scenario. Um, and a big part of my identity was being a psychologist and you know, like an academic. And I felt like. Um, 
I don't know, like, I sort of had a group, like, I was part of a group, and, you know, um, that's, like, kind of a nice feeling. Um, I also, I think some people talk about how they don't, like, they want their, maybe, like, home life to, or home life to not overlap that much with their personal life or something like that, um, and I didn't mind that that was the case, so I didn't mind that, like, my friends were also my colleagues, and, um, and, yeah, like, it felt, like, very, like, cohesive, and it was, like... Uh, meaningful identity that I had. And then when I moved to um, Alabama, that changed quite a bit. So now I think maybe even like, uh, I don't know, there's a mix, but I have a lot of friends who are not in academia at all. And that definitely has become something that feels important to me. Like, I think that I would try to not go back to, um, the scenario where I only had friends in academia. And some of the reasons for that are that, like, I think... So I, I remember, like, one specific instance where I was uh, playing chess. This was before I started practicing. Um, and I was playing chess with my friend Bob, who um, is a bartender at a bar in Tuscaloosa. Um, and he beat me pretty easily. And then... Uh, so he and I, like, are acquaintances. We see each other pretty often. Um, and he was like, wait, don't you even have your master's? And I was like, Bob, I even have my PhD. And he was like, so happy. He was like, yes, I beat someone with a PhD. <laughs> like, like, um, but like he did not care except for the fact that it gave him this like extra cred <laughs> in like winning chess, like about me having a PhD at all. And that's like been a common experience of mine, um, with friends outside of academia is that they're like extremely unimpressed with things that like I normally think of as like important accomplishments or something like that. Um, and I think that's a good thing for me. Like nobody cares if I get a paper published, I don't care if I get a grant or they're like, they're like, Oh, that sounds like it would be important to you. Good for you. Like pat you on the head, you know? Um, and so like, I mean the, the downside of that is that, you know, sometimes I'm like, but come on guys, like, don't you care? Um, but I think the upside is that, um, I guess I feel like I distribute, um, what I care about a little bit more and maybe like, I'm a little bit more like in touch with, um, the world outside of academia, which seems, um, seems important. And maybe I also have an appreciation for things that I wouldn't necessarily prioritize if I only had academic friends. So for instance, I think, a lot of my friends outside of academia are, like, very talented artists and musicians. And those are things that, like, um, yeah, I didn't... I don't think that I necessarily really appreciated as much when I only had academic friends. And I also, like, never thought, like, I should try to cultivate those skills. Like, um, it just wasn't on my radar. Um, so I think it's cool to sort of see that and appreciate that about other people and recognize that like some people are more impressed by like uh somebody who's really good at guitar than they are like it's somebody who you know got their paper published in jpsv it's kind of refreshing <laughs> yeah yeah you know it, it's interesting the the sort of like having having friends who are like have a calibrated level of being impressed by your shit is is kind of interesting right like the um you know i was i was hanging out with some friends last night most of whom you know a group who are mostly non-academics and it just came up i was talking about like a grant that recently got rejected um and uh uh you know they're like oh what was it about will we understand it and i was like mm -hmm. oh yeah you know i told them a little bit about it and they're like well that sounds really good to me and it was kind of like mm -hmm. you know it was, and then we just kind of <laughs> moved on and talked about other you know, stuff that we, we talk about. And, and it was like, oh, yeah, that was my story about my work thing. And now my other friends are telling their stories about their work. And it's just like, this is just what we do. Um, and, and yeah, that I, I know one thing that popped into my head where, we're, you know, I know we're talking about friendships that, you know, I, I've heard from a number, uh, I've heard stories now, multiple stories from different women about specifically um, when they date men who are not academics or not mm -hmm. some sort of like highly degreed professional who are like freaked out and intimidated when they find out they have a PhD and that that has sort of the opposite effect. Like they're too impressed and they don't know how to deal with a woman that uh, um, has accomplished something. <laughs> and so, and they pro they're probably the same with women that have other kinds of accomplishments too. But anyway, so that, that is kind of interesting that that that's probably very specific, like 
gender romantic thing. Because, um, yeah, it doesn't, for me, typically feel like... And it, it helps maybe being in a university town that even, you know, even people who, like, you know, they're not in academia, but they're sort of around professors all the time, and it's not this, like, weird thing. It's like, oh, yeah, you, you're you just, like, a bunch of goofball dipshits like everybody else. Yeah, I have to say, I think, Alexa, it's your personality that makes people not... Th- like be intimidated by you it's i don't i think that, i used the word impressed it was nice that you changed it to intimidated <laughs> i think people are impressed by you but i don't i think they just don't you don't seem like their stereotype of what someone who has a phd would be like because i feel like yeah what sanjay's saying resonates more with me that i feel like um people take my accomplishments quote unquote accomplishments like i don't actually think getting a phd is that big of an accomplishment but people take that way more serious like it means way more to other people outside of academia than i think it means like for me there are other things i'm way prouder of than having a phd and so i right. it's, i have to get past that like miscommunication of like yeah that's not what you it doesn't mean what you think it means and i probably don't fit like a lot of your stereotypes of what what you think that people who are professors or phds are like or whatever um yeah, so just to give a counterpoint to Alexa's uh, lifestyle, I, I basically, <laughs> like, I have a, a couple of friends outside of academia, but very, very few, and then, of course, my family, but the, you know, the majority of my close friends are academics, but, of course, that's, I have to add the caveat that I have about, like, five close friends, so, whereas Alexa is probably, like, 50, <laughs> so I think some of it is just a bandwidth thing, right? Like, I feel like I have time for, like, six people close not time it's not time it's just i have like a cold heart with a lot of walls up so <laughs> they're like there are like six people i'm really close to and they live all around the country and world in some cases so like i spend my time going to visit them basically and then like that doesn't leave a lot of time to talk to people outside of academia um but I kind of had the opposite development that Alexa had. So like in grad school, I lived with my brother and some other friends who were not psychologists and mostly not academics. And that was awesome in grad school because I would have to come home at the end of the day every day and like justify how I spent my time to people who like don't give a shit about, you know, yeah, the like right. dumb stuff about academia. So I thought that was really good for me in grad school. And then now I don't have that anymore, but I don't really miss it. I'm okay with it. Like I, I'm very scared to admit to people that I don't have a lot of friends outside of academia. I know that it sounds bad and I get why. And I agree with like all the things you were saying, Alexa, about the benefits. So it's not something I'm like proud of or would recommend to others, but it's turned out to be okay for me. Like, I don't feel like Mm -hmm. I'm missing out on that much. And I, I think it really is because I don't know. I have this like very, very narrow definition of what a good friend is that like, I just, I don't need very many of them. And then once I have my like, you know, close knit, you know people that I feel really close to I don't I don't I don't think I need as many like non-close friends as you do Alexa or not need Mm -hmm. but whatever so I think if I had more like mental capacity and emotional capacity for connecting with a broad range of people then I would want to fill out those numbers with non-academic people but given the like relatively small number of people I'm very close to I think it I feel okay with the fact that they're pretty much almost all academics um but yeah, I think that's a pretty unpopular thing to say to like be okay with that. <laughs> I feel pretty self-conscious I mean, I, about it. I, I think it, you know, it, if it works for you, then it works for you, right? Like that's, you know, I don't know. For me, I, I've always kind of had some of both. So in, in grad school, I lived in a, a, a five-bedroom house, and there were it was always, you know, one or two or three of us grad students from the psychology department, and then one or two or three of us had, you know, were doing other things. And, and that was, and, and those, you know, became some of my closest and longest standing friends. And, and it was, it was, it was kind of this great mix because, I mean, one of the things that like having friends in academia is really great for is when you're dealing with things like your insecurities, like, you know, the, the the things that you really need someone like that are sort of emotionally difficult for it it's great when you don't have to like explain like this is why this matters mm-hmm. to me you know like they they kind of get it and they they get the like weird distinct pressures yeah um uh and and one of the things like living all living together was that my you know my non-academia non-grad student roommates like, because we all hung around all the time and we we're all you know friends um, that they, you know, they were part of those conversations and they kind of got that part of, you know, of what was going on. Um, you know, and then at the same time, like they had 
other things going on in their lives that that you know I could be connected to. And I, I think since then, you know, I uh, kind of when we when I first moved to to Oregon, like you know, brand new town, didn't know a lot of people, and it took a while to sort of build up friendships. And I feel like when my friend circle has contracted, it often contracts down to my academic friends, like because they're people that have to see me and so you know they're there um but when it expands back up again uh um it you know it it feels like it sort of rounds out this for me it it sort of fills this other place this kind of like having a connection to people who like you know um I can have non-shop talk or I'm forced to have non-shop talk conversations with maybe this is even more pathetic than not having a lot of non-academic friends, but like actually, so I talk to my mom like several times a week, probably for like an hour or more each time. And she will call me on like bullshit. She is not impressed with academia. <laughs> and so like my, my number one non-academic friend and source of like feedback is my mom. And, and she is so blunt and I think honest and she is a really good sounding board for those kinds of things without. Yeah. So like sometimes I want the academic perspective of like someone who understands the distinction between PSPB and SPPS or whatever. Yeah. And sometimes I want someone who's like going to be like, that sounds ridiculous. Like why would anyone ever put up with that or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, and I do get that a lot from my mom. Yeah. I tend to, re- I think I just tend to rely on a few people and my mom kind of ful- often is the one who fulfills that like non-academic perspective for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Alexa, think... do you do you do you find yourself like with your your friends who are not in the academic world? Do you tr- like want them to like do you want to like explain to them what's going on and why it's important, or do you actually value like having a s- that be a separate sphere and not having your worlds collide? I think that I like having some friends. So I think I would feel like something was missing if I didn't have academic friends. Like it is really nice to be able to like talk to somebody who, yeah, you know, prioritizes the same things and like the same things, like things mean the same thing um, to them as they do to me. I think that is really important. And there are definitely times when I talk about like events at work to people who are non-academics and they're like, you know, my reaction is like, you just don't get it. Like, you don't understand why, like, this is important or why this is, like, you should be outraged right now. Like, you, like why are you not reacting? Like, you're suggesting that I did something wrong? Like, you just, like, don't understand at all. Um, so, like, definitely I would be missing something if I didn't have close friends who were academics. Um, but then, yeah, at the same time, I sort of do like that. Um, yeah, I think what you're describing to mean that it's just, like, sort of somebody who um, hasn't like hasn't drunk drank i never know how to say that the academic kool-aid you know um so like doesn't sort of like subscribe to the same like bullshit stuff that we sort of have gotten used to Mm -hmm. thinking is important or whatever i remember one time i called my mom after somebody had written kind of a nasty comment on one of my blog posts and i like read the blog post to my mom and then i read the comment i was like mom what should i do and she was like i don't know and i was like no but i need a perspective outside this whole because it's good was like had gotten so you know insider baseball-y that i was like i just need to step back and be like what what would a normal person do in this situation yeah yeah um so yeah i guess i don't know i see i see the merits of sort of like having everything like uh be part of the same system and then i also see the merits of having these like separate aspects um but i think the the thing that's important to me is sort of like not losing sight of the fact that like academia isn't all that matters yeah yeah i mean i think the you know like having it it's really nice when you have people who like when something is important to you and you bring it to them they'll be sympathetic and they'll care but that that's not your like default groove that you slip back into um mm-hmm. and that you can you can just have some like some time when you know you're not just sort of like ruminate i say i'm saying you me <laughs> when i can have some time when i'm not mm-hmm. like ruminating about what's going on with work and i can hear about like somebody you know somebody else's life who i'm interested in and care about um it, it helps that i'm you know i'm friends with a number of doctors and they always have awesome stories about like 
things that they've pulled out of people and whatever. And mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also, I feel like we're kind of painting things with broad strokes, which we have to do it, but that I think I choose my academic friends specifically because they share that point of view that like academics isn't everything and getting a mm-hmm. GPSP. Like I, th- I feel like among us, among our friends, like if someone gets a GPSP, we're not like, wow, that's amazing. Good for you. Right. Like that would be weird. If one of my friends reacted that way, I would be like, mm-hmm. what? Like, so I think that, you know, I think it's possible also to have academic friends who don't take academia that seriously or, or even are crit- consider themselves like critics of academia. And I think that helps, even though I have almost exclusively academic friends, I think that helps that mm-hmm. I think I tend to select for people who don't take it that seriously. Mm-hmm. I will also say that I think like having a lot of friends um outside of academia like so i think when people talk about work-life balance most of the time um they're talking about like how it's hard to make sure that they prioritize things outside of work and that it's easy for them to sort of get sucked into like you know um making work their number one priority um and i i admit that I, i like have the opposite like i I feel like my natural state is like a lot of work-life balance, like erring on the side of like, okay, I need to, I need to make myself work now because I haven't done a lot of work this week. <laughs> so, um, and I think that is partly because it's partly because like there are people that I want to spend time with that are outside of work and things that I want to do that are outside of work. But it is also because I think um, that I'm close to people who uh, don't like don't think that my work is that important and so as a result i think my work is less important probably mm-hmm. i wonder better, if it's easier i mean this is true for like the difference between me and alexa but i wonder if it's generally true that for academics who are extroverted it's easier like i just have a really hard time talking to people in the first place even academics mm-hmm. and then if i have to like strike up a conversation with someone where i don't know anything that we have in common to begin with right i have to find it then it's even mm-hmm. harder. So like for me, I think maybe it's a function of my introversion too, that I just, my mind is blank when talking to people. I have to like try pretty hard to find things to talk about. So with academics, at least I know some places to start and you're, mm-hmm. you Alexa don't have that problem. We've had many conversations about you trying to teach me how to talk to people. <laughs> it hasn't but really then you, gone you always find it so unsatisfying. Like yeah. when you come to visit me, you're like, ugh, do you have to talk to so many strangers? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I, you know, it's it, as long as we're we're you know framing this in terms of the big five. I, uh, openness is kind of an interesting <laughs> dimension too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I think you know most academics are pretty high in openness, and and you know we and and I think having having friends outside of academia, or all, but also having friends in the, what kind of friends you have inside of academia. And I think this is kind of like you guys are sort of scratching that itch in different ways, but it's like friendships are a chance to like learn new things and learn about the world and be mm-hmm. exposed to people who are, you know, and, and like Alexi, you were saying, you know, a lot of like artists and musicians and, and you know, Samin, I, you know, my, my sense is like you, you don't just hang out with other personality psychologists <laughs> like, you, you know, um, uh, and also like academics can be kind of interesting people sometimes, too. But, you know. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's another way that your friendships, wherever they are, is kind of like, I think for a lot of academics, because of being so high in openness, they're like a conduit to finding out about new things that, that appeal to that part of you. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, I really, I do have to say like the the non-academic friendships I do have, I really appreciate for those reasons. I'm going to tell one more story. So one of of my non-academic friends is this woman named Martha who lived on my street when I lived in St. Louis. And the way we became friends is that I would walk my dog past her house every time that I walked. And she's like probably my mom's age. And she had, she often hung out on her back porch and she had a cat who loved my dog and our dog and cat played with each other all the time and so then she started coming with me on the walks and so we would walk you know half an hour and maybe chat a little bit but often walk in silence and eventually you know then I would go back and have lemonade with her on her porch so we got to know each other but very very slowly by having a lot of silence and stuff like that and I remember 
my mom telling me once when I was telling her about my friendship with Martha, she's like, oh, I'm so glad you found someone who appreciates your silence. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much what it takes for someone to be willing to be friends with me. But those people exist. And it's really nice when when it but it takes something like walking by her house twice a day for years, you know, for that for me. Whereas Mm -hmm. Alexa, like in two seconds, (laughs) that'll be my best friends. I'm like the opposite. I have to get people to like appreciate my non-silence yeah. <laughs> you know like be, yeah. be okay with me asking them a lot of questions yeah but i think most people really like that yeah yeah well cool i think uh um yeah this has been fun i uh are we are we good is that yeah. is that how I'm gonna end it? Uh, someone <laughs> someone told me uh, recently that like awkward transitions are like my thing on the podcast, and so uh, um, <laughs> are we ready to awkwardly transition yeah. out of the show? <laughs> this is gonna become more and more meta. Yeah, right. It is. Yeah. Remember yeah, that time we, we talked about how awkward transitions are your thing? Right. Sanjay <laughs> right. so talking about, about awkward talking transitions. About is his thing. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, thanks everyone for for listening. Uh, you have been listening to the Black Goat, uh, which is how they do it on radio, but it's weird on a podcast because you fucking know what you've been listening to. It's not like you just found our station. But anyway, thank mm-hmm. you for listening to the Black Goat. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, we're on the web, theblackgoatpodcast.com. You can email us letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. Yeah, please email us. Um, we're on Twitter at blackgoatpod. We're on Facebook too. We love to hear from people. Uh, um, you know what you think of what we've been talking about, uh, whether it's letters for our letter segment or anything else. Um, you guys, so I'm pretty sure nobody's know. listening anymore at this point. <laughs> we'll <have to> say <laughs> right. this all again at the beginning. Well, of the if next you're episode. still here, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye until next time. <laughs>